Um, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll dive into 1 Samuel, okay? Father in heaven, we thank you for, for your word and for your story that you're telling through it. We thank you, Lord, that you are establishing your kingdom. And those of us who belong to you, Jesus, we're a part of that kingdom. Teach us even this morning about your kingdom, about what your kingdom has come to do, that as even you, Christ, proclaimed that the kingdom of God is at hand. And so, Lord, um, our response to that is we repent. And so give us just hearts this morning as we talk about the human heart. Give us hearts that love you and love your word and desire to serve you and to serve your mission. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, we'll kind of start here with a maybe a little bit of review that we've been preaching through in January, uh, the storyline of the Bible. And the storyline of the Bible is the story of God establishing his kingdom. That's what's happening, is God as an overflow of his character and of his nature. God is establishing his kingdom. And we've defined God's kingdom as this. God's kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's blessing and under God's rule. And what we see in the book of 1 Samuel, for those of you that may be reading through your, your Bible, and I know that we're, we're starting to catch up. We're now doing almost a, a book of week. So after, you know, we're like 23 weeks in and we're at 1 Samuel, but, but we're starting to catch up with some of you where you're doing your reading. And so if you read through First and even 2 Samuel, what you'll see happening in that story is you'll see God's kingdom coming into like fruition, if you would. You'll see God's kingdom being physically established. The book of Judges ends, 1 Samuel begins, and God's kingdom of God's people is still scattered tribes to some degree moving into the promised land. They're scattered tribes being led and ruled by judges. But by the time you get to um, the middle way where our reading was today, and even into the end of 1 Samuel, that what you'll see is it moves from scattered tribes, people, nomadic people, moving into building cities and building walls and building buildings and establishing themselves. And even you'll get to the place where we saw today where a king is now ruling over them. That while the, while the people in 1 Samuel, while the people are, are building physical things, walls, homes, buildings, all of those sorts of things, we also have to recognize that God is building a people. While a people are building physical things, God is building a people. And we're talking about the spiritual work that's going on. That as we think about the kingdom of God, we can also ask this question about the kingdom of God is, what will the kingdom of God be like? And that's a question that Jesus has asked a ton. What is the kingdom of God like? And, and it, maybe if we could even drill it down even further, like what will the, the inhabitants of the kingdom of God, what will they be like? We can say it like this, what is the ethos? What is the, the attitude, the, the climate, the culture of the kingdom of God? And 1 Samuel gives us a glimpse of that. But what we see in 1 Samuel is we see kind of the ethos. We see three truths that make up the ethos of the kingdom of God, the attitude of the kingdom, the, 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 the climate of the kingdom. I'm gonna give two of those for you now. And we'll hit one of them later in the sermon. So what we have is we have two universal, unchanging truths about the kingdom of God. And here's the first one. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
But the people of God who make up the inhabitants, who make up the kingdom of God, God's people in God's place, so God's people, they will be marked by humility and not pride. So 1 Samuel will open up with the story of a barren wife named Hannah who will cry out to God that God would bless her with a child. She will plead with the Lord that the Lord would open her womb and bless her with a child, and God does it. And that child is Samuel. And then in chapter two of 1 Samuel, you'll see Hannah sing a song, a word of praise. Give this word in the, the, the refrain throughout. The very uh, crux of the song that she's singing is that very song, that God, you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. And you have graciously, because I've humbled myself before you, you've heard my plea, you've heard my prayer, and you've blessed me with this child. That's the first one, and that will be a refrain throughout the entire Bible that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Number two, this will come much later in the book of 1 Samuel, but it is formative throughout the Bible. It's found actually beyond even our reading in 1 Samuel 16. God says this, that the Lord sees not as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so the story of 1 Samuel will be that very thing. It will be those two truths coming together. It would be man looking on the outside and choosing a king, a king by the name of Saul, and that king will be proud. And then it'll be God looking upon the heart and God choosing for the people a new king and a better king, a king that everybody overlooks, a king who will be humble, and his name is David. In fact, there are there are three sub-characters throughout the book of uh, first, and, first Samuel. Um, the, I, you would normally say there's three main characters, but the main character in First Samuel is God, right? The main character throughout the whole Bible is God. And so there are three sub-characters slash main characters throughout First uh, Samuel, and they are Samuel, and Samuel is the last judge and also the first major prophet since Moses, So there's been a span of time where there hasn't been a prophet in the land, and now there's a new prophet, and his name is Samuel. He's the last judge and the first prophet. The second main sub-character is the person of King Saul, and King Saul will be the people's king. He will be the people's champ with the people's elbow. No, that's for the wrestling fans in the room. He is King Saul. He is the people's king. And then there will be King David, who is the Lord's king. The book of Judges, where we were two weeks ago, and if we followed in chronological order, we would be there. Uh, the book of Judges ends with this verse, Judges 21, 25. It says this, In those days there was not a king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so there's a, there's a, there's a tension building. Do you feel it? Where you say, oh, if only they had a king. If only the people had a king and then all of this chaos, because that's how judges enters and all of this evil would be subdued. And Samuel opens up with this, the people's king. That what happens in Samuel is the people come to Samuel the prophet and they say to him, give us a king like all the other nations have kings. And that's the key. We want a king like every other nation has a king. Now, let me just make this as a side note, that a king ruling God's people, a king under God, established by God, was always part of the plan. 
Like this isn't God changing his plan, taking out his eraser saying, hey, I'm gonna make in a new plan. God's plan, we could look if we had time through the Old Testament prophecies saying that a king will rule, a scepter will never leave Judah. So we have a picture of a king coming. But the difference is, is God's plan was to always have a king who ruled under God on behalf of God. But what the people of Israel are asking for is they're saying, hey, we want a king instead of God. That's the difference. God's plan was always a king. In fact, God's blessing to his people will come as God's king rules in God's stead, ruling his kingdom. God is ruling his kingdom through his king that he has established and appointed and anointed. But what the people are asking for is they're saying, we don't want that. We want a king instead of you, God. And so God does that. He grants them their prayer. He gives them a king and he chooses for them King Saul. Now, Saul is the prototype king. Saul is the dude that if you were to pick a king, you would pick King Saul. That 1 Samuel describes Saul like this. First of all, it says he's a handsome man. In fact, the Bible says this, that not a man among the people of Israel was more handsome than he was handsome. And so who wants an ugly king, right? And so God gives them a pretty king, right? I don't know what in your mind he may look like, but he looks like that thing, that person, whoever that is, Thor, right? In my home, that's who it would be. It would be what Chris Hems were. It would be him. He looked like him. Not only was he handsome, but he was tall, which kind of goes with handsome, right? I'm of average height and of average handsomeness, right? And he's tall. In fact, the Bible says he is taller than anyone else. He's impressive. And God says, here, here is your king, Israel, and he appoints King Saul. Saul comes together as king and Saul was a good Republican because the first thing that he did was he put together an impressive army. That's just a little political humor. I'm just kidding, you know, but he puts together an impressive army. He builds up the military. And so that's what he begins to do. In fact, the Bible says this, at any time that King Saul saw a strong or valiant man, he enlisted him into his army and Israel begins to go to war. And as they go to war, they see success. Let's pick up the text there. First Samuel chapter 15, verses one through three says this. And Samuel says to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did in Israel in opposing them on the way when they, come up, when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now let's pause there. It's a tough text. I mean, I, I, I will give that to you. That's a tough text. And oftentimes people on the other side of Christianity and on the other side of the Bible, when they read a text like that, gosh, a thousand questions come into their mind or maybe just one, why would God do that? I thought this was the God of love. How can God command his people to destroy children and infants? Like, and I understand that. I understand that. But let me just also say this. 
that if you struggle at this point with God, if you struggle in the Bible and then the story of uh, in the storyline of the Bible at this point with God destroying unjust evil people, with God saying wipe unjust, evil people out, you're really going to struggle when you get to the New Testament and you see God wiping out his innocent son. You're really going to struggle there. But this is what God is doing. Like what is happening? Why? Why is God commanding this? Well, here's why God is commanding this. Remember that second point? Man looks on the outward appearances, but God looks upon the heart. And as God looks upon the heart of the Amalekites, what God sees in their heart is evil, war, and violence. That the Amalekites were an evil people. They were an unjust people. That historically, what we see even in other ancient historical documents is that the Amalekites were like the pirates of the desert, They would lie in wait for people to wander or to pass through the wilderness, the desert, and then they would pounce on them. They're like the the Tuscan Raiders, the the sand people um, uh, of the ancient Near East. That's who they are from Star Wars. That in Egyptian writings, they're called the plunderers. And what they would do is they would lie in wait and they would attack like a, like a lion would attack a, a herd or a group of wildebeests in the, in the jungles or in the, in the Serengeti. That's how they would work. Have you ever seen that on National Geographic, how they do a lion circling this group, this you know, traveling band of wildebeests? And then how do lions work? Well, they work from the outside. They pick off, they chip away at the weakest of the group and they would see a weakness and then they would pounce on that weakness and they would go to work. And here's how the Amalekites would work. They would destroy and kill whatever they thought was worthless and they would keep whatever they thought was a value, the bounty. And they did this to the children of Israel As Israel was wandering in the desert, in fact, three different times, the Amalekites partner up. They team up with other nations in order to try to destroy and to plunder and to chip away at and pick away at Israel. And now God says to Saul, Saul, I want you to completely and utterly wipe them out. Why? Because this is an act of justice. In fact, look at the rules of engagement that he says. Basically make sure, this is what he's saying here. Saul, I want you to basically make sure that you do not do what they do. It's not about you getting bounty. It's not about you getting rich. It's not about the Israelites getting even. It's about me enacting my justice through you. And in fact, we could say this, historically speaking, many countries, they'll go to war in the name of truth and justice, but what they're really after is power and profit. And what God is saying to his army, not you. This is not an act of imperialism. This is an act of justice. You are wiping them out in the name of justice. And so Saul takes 210,000 valiant warriors, Israel's best men, and he sets up an ambush and he attacks the Amalekites. Look with me at verse number seven. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people, they spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves. 
and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Do you see what they're doing? Do you see what the children of Israel are doing? They're doing exactly what God is judging the Amalekites for. They've destroyed what they have deemed worthless, namely the women and the children and the infants, and they have kept what they thought was profitable, the livestock, the fatted calves, the sheep, even old King Agag. See, they kept old King Agag, and in fact, Agag's name means the fiery one. They've kept the fiery one because he could be sold. There's many countries that would probably have loved to have a captured Agag, a captured fiery one. And so the children of Israel have said, even he is profitable, we'll keep him and then probably to sell him. In their disobedience, they have become one of them. Now, let me bring this home to us for a minute. That's a pattern of sin. That isn't just an isolated event that you see here in 1 Samuel, but what we have here is we have a pattern happen that oftentimes the victims become the victimizers. Those abused oftentimes become abusers. Oftentimes I say this, that hurting people hurt people. Those oppressed become oppressors. We see it even right now. Our response to unnecessary violence is up with unnecessary violence, right? And we gotta, we gotta understand this. Sin never fixes sin. In our human nature, whenever there's sin, what we think that we ought to do is just throw more sin at that sin and then see what happens. And sin never fixes sin, And here's the deal. Back into this text, Saul and the children of Israel, they didn't even see their sin and disobedience. They didn't even see it. They didn't even recognize it. Why? Because man looks at outward appearances, but God judges the heart. That's why, because they were so focused on the outside, what looked like obedience. And we'll see that even in the text. Look with me at verse number 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel and says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry. And he cried to the Lord all night long. And then verse number 12, and Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul has gone to Carmel and behold, he has, he, he set up a monument for himself. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble and where's after this war, after his disobedience, totally blinded to his own sin, where is Saul? Setting up a monument to himself. He turned and he passed, and, uh, passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul. And Saul said to him, Look, blessed to be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. That's this, again, this is Saul telling this to Samuel. I've done it. I've done it. I've, I've, I performed the commandment of the Lord. And one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, 
And Samuel said, then what is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, look, verse 15, well, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see what's occurring in Saul's heart? That what God is doing is God is revealing to us the the depth of our own hearts here. He's declaring to us the depth of the fall. He's declaring to us the state of every human being. That remember what, what man sees is man sees the outward appearance, but God is the one who sees the heart. Remember that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And as God sees the human heart, what he sees has been the story throughout about humans as God has seen is hearts that are filled with deceit and hearts that are filled with pride. And listen, this is how we work in our pride left to our own. We will do whatever is necessary to maintain outward appearances. That for the sinful man, Not only do we see, not only do we look upon, but our priority is the outward appearances. It's always our primary concern. And what we do is we do it to the neglect of the hidden things, the inward things of our hearts. What motivates us left to our own? Why do we do the things that we do? We do them to maintain outward appearances to appear strong, to appear put together, to appear godly, to appear righteous, to appear good, to appear obedient. That whenever the Bible says that man thinks about, man looks upon the outward appearance, but God sees the heart, that many people would see that and they may feel a sense of relief because we want to believe that at our hearts, at our cores, we're, we're good people, right? That's what we want to believe about ourselves, and that's what we want to believe about others. That you know what, like that, that, that guy over there, he's, gosh, I know what you've seen him do. I know that you've seen his Facebook. I see, you know, but at his heart, he's really a good guy, right? Like, like the, 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 the Bo and Luke Duke, right? They're never meaning no harm, right? They're, they're, yeah, they're breaking the law, but they're never meaning no harm. They're just a couple of good old boys, and that's what we say about people. You know what, in reality, he's a good old boy, That's what we say about ourselves even. Didn't really mean any harm about anything that I've done. At my heart, I really believe that I'm a a good person. But this is what the Bible says about the heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, it says this, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's as if God would say to us like, hey, I want you to go on a scavenger hunt. I want you to look high and low all over the earth. And what I want you to do is I want you to come back with the thing that has the most potential for evil, the thing that is desperately sick, the thing that has the most potential to be so deceitful. Bring that thing back to me. And you know what you would carry back to God? The human heart. And let me just take it a step further. You would take back to God your own heart, my heart. But here's what we do. In order to reel away from the reality of our own human heart, what we do is we do the same thing that Saul has done. We self-deceive. 
in an effort to maintain outward appearance, we self-deceive. As Tim Keller puts it, he says, we're masters at self-deception. In fact, look at Saul's self-deception, verse number 20. And Saul said to Samuel, I have. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which God has sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of, of, Amalek, of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people, but those people, the army, you know, the soldiers, you can't control people. The people, they took of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen and the best of the things devoted to destruction. In order to do this, though, here's my plan. I've got a plan for all of this. It's to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Can you recognize the self-destruction? I mean, the self-deception? I've done all those things. I just, you know what? I took God's plan and I made it a little bit better. That's what he said. I heard you. I heard the voice of God. But, you know, I thought I could maybe improve upon God's command. I could improve on his plan. And I, t- I did those things. I was obedient. And yet, I also added to it. Tim Keller says this about self-deception. He says, self-deception is the almost infinite ability of the human heart to hide the truth from itself. When that truth is unpleasant enough. Let's pause there. Uh, welcome to my Tuesday. I found this on Tuesday and it, oh my gosh, because I see my own heart in this. It's not even about others. We don't just, it's self-deception. We deceive ourselves. He goes on and he says this, it is the ability to know the truth, but not know the truth because you don't want the truth. Everybody wants to be told the truth until you tell them the truth. And left to our own devices, apart from the work of the Spirit, what we will then do is we'll get out our crocheting needles and we'll begin knitting together some other story, some mask, some thing out there to deceive Tim Keller says that when the truth is too hot to hold, too painful to think about, we smother it. And maybe this is you who's watching. Maybe this is you in the room. Why can't you admit that you drink too much? Why can't you admit that and get help for it? I'll tell you why, because the truth of that's too hot to hold. And so you just self-deceive and you continue doing what you've been doing in your life. Why can't you admit that you find pleasure and excitement from watching victimized and abused women do unspeakable things on camera for profit? You watch it and you enjoy it and find pleasure in it. And that's the reality of it. The reality of the story is, is what you're watching is you're watching victims and abused people who've been picked away and chipped at and believe that they're worthless and you find pleasure in that. Why can't you admit that? Why can't you admit your brokenness in that? 
that you would be so broken that you would enjoy that? Why can't you admit that and then find help for it? Let me tell you why, because you self-deceive. Why can't you admit that you're overspending and your debt is stifling the life out of your life? Why can't you admit that, confess that, and get help for that? I will tell you why. Because it's too hot to hold. It's too painful of a truth to admit. And ultimately, your primary concern is outward appearance. So your pride leaves you to self-deceive. And self-deception is like a train. The conductor of the train is the father of lies, the master deceiver and manipulator, Satan himself. And the destination of the train of self-deception is spiritual and self-destruction. And that's where many of you are. The self-deceit is like, uh, well, it's like a master illusionist that, that while we've been um, quarantined, uh, you know, there hasn't been a lot to do. I've been myself been trying to fight off boredom. And in my boredom, I, I, I don't watch much TV. The reason why I don't watch much TV is not a spiritual reason. It's probably the opposite. But I don't watch much TV because I have the attention span of a squirrel. I have an attention span shorter than most of your toddlers. And so I can't watch TV because even a 30-minute show, I get bored with it. I'm already have flip channels and all that. So, but what I have found while on quarantine is I found Facebook Watch. And so what it is is little short, my attention span, four or five or six-minute little clips. And then according to who you follow on Facebook, it'll put them together for you. And so a lot of them for me are cooking shows or it's uh, guys shooting stuff, guys blowing up stuff. There's even a, a guy from Russia with this thick Russian ad, uh, accent. And he, what he's doing is he's talking about gadgets gadgets, but he calls them gadgets that he's bought on Amazon and he's reviewing them. And I'm watching all of that. And I don't even know how, but on my Facebook watch feed, there's also these illusionists on there. They're doing like these sleight of hand tricks and I'm, I'm kind of watching them and self-deception works like that, that works like sleight of hand because what they do is they say, Hey, don't watch what I'm doing over here with this hand. What I want you to do is focus on what I'm doing at this hand. And while you're focused over here on this hand, this hand's doing whatever it wants to do. And that's the way self-deception works. Don't watch the disobedience over here. What I want you to see is the obedience or something else over here. And in fact, that's what King Saul tries to pull on Samuel and tries to pull over on the Lord. The first thing he does is he shifts the blame. Just like we saw Adam in the Garden of Eden. It's not me, God. It's this woman that you've given. He does the same. He shifts the blame. Don't look at me, but look at others. Look at this army. They're the ones that have done this. I'm just following the people. They've done it. They've gathered it. And then the second thing he tries to do is he tries to rectify his disobedience in that area with seemingly obedience, seemingly sacrifice, some sort of religious thing. He says, we saved it in order to sacrifice to the Lord, your God. Now notice even that. This is Saul saying this to Samuel. Saul saying, it's your God, Samuel. It's almost even in his sin, there's a distance there where he no longer refers to God as his God, but now he's referring to him as as your God in Gilgal. And look at what Samuel says in verse number 23. And Samuel said, has the Lord, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? All that the good that you want to do never outweighs, or even all the good that you do never outweighs the bad. 
It doesn't work like that. Behold, to obey, obedience is better than sacrifice. That's the third universal truth of the kingdom of God. Our obedience is always better than our sacrifice. Our obedience at believing and trusting God's word is always better than our religiosity, our religion of sacrifice, anything that we may do for God. And he says, and to listen is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption, presumption, presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And God rejects Saul as king. But Samuel will literally grab a hold of Saul's clothes. And it says that Samuel will rip Saul's skirt from him, which just makes you think maybe he wasn't all that of a masculine king anyway, because he ripped his skirt. But anyway, he rips his skirt. It's being torn away. That's the picture. The kingship is being torn away from you, Saul. And then Samuel, under God's command, he will anoint a new king, an overlooked shepherd boy named King Dave, named David. But Saul won't go down easy. In his self-deception, he will feel so threatened by David that he will threaten David's life. <laughs> That's how it works. Those who feel threatened, oftentimes threaten, and that's what will happen. And for the next 13 chapters, for the rest of 1 Samuel and the rest of Saul's tragic life, he will be consumed with envy and jealousy. And at the end, King Saul will be a tragic failure, which will intensify our longing, the same longing that we felt at the end of Judges, we will still feel at the end of 1 Samuel, oh, if only Israel had a king. Because the longing for a new and better king will ultimately be fulfilled, not just in David. Oh, David will be the prototype, but David too will fail. You'll see that in 2 Samuel. You'll see that in two weeks. Ultimately, it points forward to a king who will embody the very ethos of the kingdom. In fact, Jesus will say this about himself. In Matthew eleven twenty eight. he says this, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Just let that rest. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Embodying, embodying the ethos of the kingdom. For Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus will be gentle and lowly in heart. He won't be much to look at. In fact, the Bible says he will be despised and he will be rejected by men. He will be a man of sorrows. Like David, he will be often looked over. And yet he is gentle and lowly in heart. And he comes for those of us, those of us who have pride-filled hearts, those of us, though, who are willing to lay down our pride, those of us who self-deceive, he doesn't come for the worthy, but he comes for the worthless. He's the opposite 
of the people of Israel. He doesn't look at and determine this is worthy. I keep that. That is worthless. I destroy it. In fact, no, he does the opposite. He comes for the worthless and he comes and he says, take that thing, that thing that is too hot to hold, that thing that is too painful for you to admit, take that thing, that truth that you are too prideful and too scared to admit and lay it on me. Give it to me. Give it to me and I will take it. I will take it to my cross and I will, I will crucify it on my cross and I will give you something better, a better burden to carry, a better thing for you to find, a better thing than the, than the train of self-deception leading you to spiritual destruction. It's the very opposite. Oh, it's the freedom to admit and to confess and to pour our hearts out to him and let him take us to gospel town where we find forgiveness, where we find Christ's righteousness and where we find rest. May you find rest for your souls even this day. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the rest that you promise and you have accomplished through your cross. Thank you that it's through your cross that we can admit we can admit our, our weaknesses and we can admit our failures. We can admit the thing that is too hot to hold, too painful to admit. As I even think about the words of David, as David cries out in Psalm 33, and as David says that when he, when he held his sin in, when he held it in, that his bones wasted away. And Father, I pray like for us, Lord, that we could lay down whatever, whatever it is that we're carrying, Lord. That we could lay that thing down at your feet through confession and admitting to it and by receiving salvation from you, Lord. So many folks, Lord, we try to self-deceive through our righteous acts. And really, it's just our pride. It's just our pride. Lord, I pray that you would crush our concern for outward appearances, Lord, and we, we would just admit, we'd have the strength to admit, admit it all before you, Lord. For your fame and for your glory, Lord, we pray that. Amen.